Goldstein, and this is a special episode of my podcast, The Scriptures Are Real, the podcast where we try to look at things that help the scriptures become more real so that we can gain more power from them. In these special editions, I'm posting videos that I made for my classes at, in order to help them get more out of class than what we could cover in class, and I've decided to make them available to you so that you can uh, also get a little bit of extra more beyond what I'd be able to do in the normal podcast. I just want to help people understand Isaiah. So they're very video oriented frequently, not all the time, but frequently. And my apologies to my audio audience, which is my largest audience. But uh, when I made these, I wasn't thinking of audio. I was just thinking of my classes, but I think you'll still get plenty out of them if you're just on audio and you can always go to the YouTube uh, video if there's one that you felt like, ah, I'd just like to see that part. Um, but and, and they're kind of hokey. They're just what I do for my classes, although the whole podcast is kind of hokey. So that's fine. I've just done this because I hope it's helpful for you. All right. We don't want uh, this to be very long, but uh, we want to cover the material for the first part of this lesson. And a lot of it's been uh, covered in the well, not a lot, but some of it's been covered in that uh, video you already watched that introduces the first few verses of chapter 21 in this prophecy against Babylon, where I think it's also worth noting how in this prophecy we see how difficult this is for Isaiah. He compares seeing the destruction that comes to Babylon to the birth pains, and that's a common biblical thing to when something is painful to compare it to, to the most painful thing uh, that they all seem to know about, which is uh, labor pains. So he, he says it's like giving birth. The, seeing the terrible things that happened to Babylon. Um, and he, in fact, doesn't even describe it for us, whereas most of the time he tries to help us feel it. He won't even describe this. Instead, he just describes for us what it's like to have the watchman come and tell us that, um, that Babylon has been destroyed. Um, let's just continue with a couple of other things. He, he then moves on in chapter 21 to addressing a different group. Um, and this actually, initially, the first group is uh, in um, Mo or, uh, Edom, all right? So that's just south of Moab, uh, the area of Petra today. That's uh, uh, just kind of adjacent to the southern part of Judah, all right, just to the east of it um, across the Jordan Rift Valley. So uh, he talks about Duma. No, no one knows where Duma is. I don't think it's actually a real place, so I'll explain why in a second, but, but we can't figure out anything about Duma. Um, he does mention then Seir, which is another name for Edom. Um, and uh, here's the play on words that I think is happening. The Akkadian word for Edom is Edumu or Duma, and the Hebrew word for silence is Duma. So I think that's why he gives this place the name Duma, is it's a play on the Akkadian word for Edom, um, but he's bringing in this idea that they're silent, like the silent cities of Moab, you remember, where they were destroyed so much that there was nothing but silence left. And I think he's saying that about what will happen in Edom. He then goes on to mention uh, Arabia, and he mentions, for instance, in verse 13, Dedanim, and uh, we get uh, what in uh, verse 16, Kadar, uh, there's someone else, where's the other, the, oh, Teba, right, right, that's what I remember, I'm not seeing it right now, oh, yeah, uh, Tema, verse 14, Tema, those are all sons of Ishmael. So remember that Abraham has uh, a son, first named Ishmael, through whom much of the covenant goes, not the same promised land, and not that everyone who joins the gospel will become his seed, but seems like the rest of the covenant goes there. And he has 12 children. 
and uh, Abraham's just, or I mean, Isaiah's just named three of them that are kind of scattered about in Arabia. So it'd be a little bit like saying, well, in, um, in Seattle and in Tallahassee and in Chicago, uh, these things will happen, which is just a way of kind of showing it's going to happen all throughout the country, right? So that's, that's part of what he's seeing, that even these people will fall. Uh, so let's look at chapter 22 uh, and spend a little bit of time there. Chapter 22, again, we're not looking at things in chronological order. The chapter's unarranged in chronological order, and especially these chapters that are the address to the nations. And this is the last uh, group that are these address to the nations, right? Um, and uh, they're kind of not arranged chronologically. It seems like they're taken from all sorts of time periods and just put together because they're addresses to all these nations, even though this nation is not a foreign nation, but is, is Judah. Um, and this seems to be kind of towards the end, probably somewhere around 705 BC. It seems to be um, as um, Hezekiah has decided to rebel against Assyria and he's turned to Egypt for help and he's uh, working on uh, kind of taking care of things himself but hasn't yet responded fully the way that Isaiah wants him to or that he will respond. All right, so that seems to be the timing uh, as he's getting ready for the Assyrians to come down. Um, now, I, what I'd like us to do is to outline this together, only obviously since it's a video, I'll just do it. And part of the reason I'm doing this is because you're going to uh, be asked to outline, uh, create an outline for your next response paper, uh, where you'll create an outline the way you've learned in junior high with, you know, Roman numeral one and so on and so on. It, it doesn't have to be exactly that way. You don't have to use Roman numerals or whatever, but creating an outline. And, um, but in there, you're going to be asked to address symbols, and uh, different time periods and all of the things that you've learned so far. So it's one response paper building on another, right? Um, and uh, one skill adding to the other, but using uh, all of the earlier skills each time. So uh, we'll do that together. I do have an example of one, not with the symbols and the time periods and so on, but just an outline of a chapter that I created years ago for an Isaiah chapter in the Book of Mormon. But this just to give you an idea of what an outline might look like, but I thought we would do it together here. Um, all right, so I've kind of got this outline started. Um, and so what I'll just do to begin with is I'm just going to write verses uh, uh, one through two. All right, now I don't know uh, yet exactly what I will title that. I'll come back and, and talk about what that is in a minute. But as I look at it, we've got this burden. And uh, the first thing it says that they're, they're going up to the housetops. Now, what I know from uh, reading this a little bit further is that uh, in verse two that they're up there being tumultuous and joyous so i'm just going to say they're they're partying oh, i wanted all of this to be um this may not work well if i have to do this every time i'm just trying to make it easy for you to see but it may not this may be the last time we do that um they're 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 partying on the rooftop though right they're just having a good time they are, uh, there's a lot of stir. Okay, it's staying black. So that you, you know, that, that meaning that there's all sorts of stuff going on. Joyous and tumultuous, right? Uh, and and uh, no, no uh, battle deaths kind of thing. So things are just great and easy for them and they're not having, um, uh, so in fact, that's what I'll call this. They're, they're not having 
terrible difficulties and so they're actually not paying much attention to the lord they're just uh having a, a great uh, party right uh, just not doing what they should uh not not aware of the gravity of their situation they're just uh kind of having a good time so then we could go say verses three through four or three through seven and you'll have to like just look at it each time yourself and figure out what are the cohesive units that i want to do um so verses three through seven uh we're gonna say um they're surrounded by archers right now this seems to be talking about when the um the Assyrians a little bit, their siege doesn't last very long because God ends it, uh, but the Babylonians surround uh, Jerusalem and they're trying to starve everyone out. And if anyone tries to escape, then they're shot by archers that are sitting there waiting to catch anyone who tries to escape because they want everyone to be miserable. So they'll all give in. Um, so they're surrounded by archers and there's weeping and um, what else? There's, there's trouble and perplexity and so on right uh trouble all right now we're going to go to verses so we're going to just say here uh things change trouble comes okay yeah we should probably put a y there okay so in verses uh let's say eight through 14. In verses 8 through 14, we're going to get, um, they, where did they look in verse 8? They did looks in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. So the house of the forest is, um, in fact, we're going to um, uh, kind of try and describe this. So I'm, I'm going to try and draw. The city of David or Jerusalem goes kind of like this, all right, going up a hill. This is a steep hill. And this is where, say, David's palace was. But then um, Solomon built a bigger palace here and the temple here, all right, kind of going uphill all this way. So his palace is right in here, right? And there's a, a big room in there where he used so much cedar um, that it, it became known as the, the room of the forest or the house of the forest. And that's where the armory was. That's where he kept. So in some room right around here, he's got this armory. Um, and that's where when the people who are living down here, when they look up, they look and they see the palace and that's what they're going to rely on. They're going to rely on the armory. They're going to rely on uh, the things that Hezekiah is doing. He's building big walls. He's building uh um he's diverting the water so that the enemy can't have any water but they can have plenty of water inside by the way i misspoke um in the other video that you watched that the wall was actually 22 feet wide not 10 feet wide 22 feet wide that's a that's a broad wall um but those are the things they're relying on are the things that um they can do for themselves but if they had looked a little further what they would have seen is the temple right and that's what they should have been relying on was the temple uh, or not the temple but what the temple represents they should have been looking to god for deliverance rather than looking to the king and man's power for deliverance that's the mistake that they've made and that's the problem they're going to have now eventually we know that um isaiah will get them and actually a guy named elikim will help but uh will get them 
to turn to the Lord and look to him for help. And then they'll keep doing these other things. It's good to have the walls and it's good to have, um, you know, your armory ready and water ready and those kinds of things. But relying on those things alone won't help you. So if that's what you're looking to, you're in trouble. If you're looking to God and doing what you can, then he'll do the rest, right? And so the, the question is not that they were doing those things or the problem is not that they're doing those things. It's that that's what they're relying on rather than relying on God. They'd looked higher, but not high enough. And I think that's, that's an important concept to get down, all right? So um, if we are going to share our screen again and go back to, let's see here, um, we could say they're, they're looking to the armory um, there, uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, uh, building walls, right. And, uh, diverting water and so on and so on. You get the idea. So what I will title this is looking to the wrong source for help. So all this is just an example of the kind of outline that I hope you'll do, but of course you'll also then include, you know, armory. What's the symbolism of that? Walls. What's the symbolism of that? And you know, you'll have discussions in here as well as just this outline. That's part of what I'm asking you to do. So, um, with all of that, then let's see here. I think we've covered everything that's in this. Yeah, they party where the well. There's a famine and there's great destruction and and so on. Okay, and here's pictures of that wall and of the water system and so on. Right. So. Now let's, what they haven't done is look to God. So now let's talk about Shebna and Eliakim. This is what we get in, in verse 15, um, where they're told to go to Shebna. And what is, are they upset about with Shebna? Well, the, the symbol they will use is that he's hewn out a huge um, uh, sepulcher or tomb for himself, all right? And, but that seems to be just a symbol of the fact that he's relying on what seems to, he wants wealth and prestige and power. And so he's, he's doing those things that are a great show. And I think they use the tomb just because of how ridiculous that is. Uh, as symbolically, you think about it, uh, you build a big tomb for yourself. You'll never actually enjoy being in there because when you're in there, you're dead, right? But what's more, they tell him because you're relying on these wrong things, he becomes the symbol for the relying on wrong things. Whereas Eliakim will become the symbol for relying on God. So... Shebna, um, because he's relying on the wrong things, will actually be taken captive by the Assyrians and he'll die in Assyria and won't be buried in that tomb at all. So he doesn't even get to have his dead body enjoy it. And that highlights the, the, the temporary and foolish nature of relying on the wrong kinds of things. So Shebna will be relieved from office. And instead, we're going to get in verse 20, he's going to uh, have put in his place Eliakim. Now, the office is he is the steward of the king's house. In other words, he is over everything that the king wants to have done. He's the king's right-hand man. Uh, whatever the king wants to have done, uh, it will be his steward who makes it done. So outside of the immediate royal family, such as the king and his, his uh, children, especially his son and his wife, um, this is the most powerful person around. And typically, there'll be a, a royal relative, all right, um, in that uh, descendant of David, uh, just not in line for the throne. And so Shebna is removed from that office, and Eliakim is put in. And if we look at verse 21, we start to get some interesting symbols. I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit. So you've got both the robe and a girdle. We'll come back to that in a minute. 
and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So he's going to take care of them, right? And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So um, if uh, we've talked about what's wrong with Shebna. Oh, I forgot to show you this. Um, this is actually, we found the lintel of Shebna's tomb. Uh, across the Kidron Valley and in the Mount of Olives, there are a bunch of tombs, and in one really big one, they found the lintel that has Shebna's name on it and him talking about how this is a great, nice tomb, all right? So this, the, we know there's truth behind this accusation. Shebna actually built this big tomb, and so we, this is a, a literally a touchstone with the story, all right? So God's going to remove Shebna, and he'll die in, in Assyria, and his replacement is Eliakim. And we want to look at the signs of Eliakim's office. What we've just read is described as the robes of the office is very similar to the description of the robes for the high priest. It does seem to be in, intentionally modeled on the high priest. So you can see here is what the normal priest looks like, but the high priest has this special um, robe with a special girdle. All right, and he wears this breastplate, the linen ephod, um, where the Urim and Thummim was put, and it had uh, one stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But a particular note is he had uh, on this cord going over his shoulder, he had an insignia on his shoulder that, that signified that he was the high priest. That was the, the insignia of his office was on the shoulder, um, uh, an insignia that he's the high priest. And so it would seem that the uh, steward of the Lord's or of the king's house had some kind of uh, apron or girdle kind of a thing and had something on his shoulder that was the uh, insignia that he was the top person in the government besides the king himself. Uh, and so that's uh, that helps us understand, for instance, even imagery we read back in Isaiah chapter nine, where it talked about the government being on his shoulders. Now, of course, there, there's symbolism between behind having it on your shoulders because that's where you bear your burdens is on your shoulder, right? So it's a burden that you bear. It's not a glorious, wonderful thing. Look how cool I am. It's supposed to be a burden that you bear on your shoulders to be the high priest or to be the person who is making the king's will uh, happen or be done. Um, that's supposed to kind of designate that, having the government on your shoulders in that way. And note how he's given that ability, besides the king, there's no one. If he says, okay, open these storehouses and give to the poor, no one can stop, shut it and say, no, we're not going to. But if he says, shut the storehouses, we're not giving it to these people, no one can contradict him except for the king, right? And uh, then we get these further uh, verses where he talks about, um, I'm just going to skip a verse for a second, verse 24. They shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house. All right, so in a way, this is about his father. He's the, in his family, this is the highest office anyone will ascend to. But in a way, it's about David, right? He seems to be a descendant of David, and he represents David. Um, and so uh, all the glory and, and, and even of the offspring and the issue, right? None that come after him will be as, as powerful as him. And by the way, we'll encounter Eliakim later in the story. We, we keep finding him uh, as he is. He's one of the ones who will help Hezekiah turn to God. And rather than just focus on building walls, they'll start focusing on getting rid of idolatry and on having the kinds of rituals uh, in the temple and for the people that they should. And so on, that becomes their focus under Isaiah, Hezekiah, and Eliakim, turning to God first and also building walls, right? And so we'll encounter him doing this. Now, let's look at verse 23. This is one that uh, a lot of people struggle with. Uh, I will fasten him as, a, I mean, struggling knowing what it means. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall uh, be a glorious throne to his father's house. So that glorious throne to his father's house we get, but the nail in a sure place, 
Um, what what is that about? And honestly, we don't know for sure, but there's a pretty good chance that they're drawing from symbolism that they probably do that also was done by some of their Near Eastern neighbors. So we know about this, for example, from uh, these Sumerian examples where you have this nail. It was a big clay nail that was symbolically driven into a building. Um, to, to, it didn't really hold it together, but the symbolism was this is what holds the building together. And it would have inscribed on it what was important. And that would tell you what the building was really about. So in this first one is the terms of covenant and treaty. Uh, and this building was built to commemorate the, the covenant that had been made and the, the terms of the covenant were written on there. This one was to a god and it was put in a temple and it had the, the names and the properties of that god and, and offerings made to him and so on. Right, So it tells you this is what holds this temple together. It's, it's the house of this god and it's where these kinds of things are supposed to happen. So the symbolism seems to be that, um, that Eliakim will make the king's house work. Um, because he's like these things, that, that he will be the thing that holds it together and makes it all work and all happen the way that it's supposed to. All right, that seems to be the symbolism. Now, when it comes to verse 25, and it talks about that the nail will fasten, will be removed and cut down, um, Joseph Smith tells us no one really understands that, so I'm not going to pretend to understand it. Um, but the question I want to ask you is this. How do we understand this prophecy about Christ better by understanding its original context? Surely Eliakim is the immediate fulfillment of this. And I think we've gone through how Eliakim doing the king's will, bringing people to God um, and, and so on, uh, the immediate context. But this is clearly also a prophecy about Christ. And what I hope you'll do is take some time to think about how does understanding the immediate context better help you understand the prophecy about Christ? Take some time to think about that.